Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. On this podcast, we try to delve into challenges faced by ministry leaders in churches and uh, ministry organizations like our seminary, our mission board, or an association of churches. We try to talk about what it means to lead in those contexts uh, biblically and with a good theological basis, but always focusing on the practical realities of what it means to lead. So today, uh, I want to talk about an issue or an aspect of leadership that is, I think, really overlooked in the literature and is something I've been emphasizing more and more along the way. Leadership is important, but nothing is accomplished uh, without followers. While leaders are significant, followers are the ones who really get the work done. In my book on leading major change in your ministry, uh, I said it this way. I said major change begin, or is directed by God and requires the initiative of a leader, but major change is accomplished by followers. Now, the importance of the role of followers in the leadership dynamic it can be seen really throughout Scripture, but in my book, again, on leading major change, I use the story of Joshua and the conquest of Jericho as a kind of a template for what happens in a major leadership project or a major leadership change. And as I point out in the book, in that story, I show that while God directed Joseph to conquer Jericho, and while Joseph, or excuse me, Jer- uh, Joshua uh, stood up and made the decision to uh, initiate the conquest of Jericho. It was really the followers who accomplished it. They were the ones who uh, shouted down the walls. Uh, They were the ones who accomplished the military victory. Uh, They were the ones who fulfilled all that God had directed and Joshua had initiated. So the followers are vital in the leadership dynamic. Now, In order to understand how important followers are, it's important for you to learn to put yourself in your followers' shoes and learn to lead from their perspective. Now, frankly, leaders often get caught up in what they're doing, get so immersed in their leadership challenges and so committed to accomplishing their vision that they forget how all of that is perceived by or experienced by their followers. For example, uh, a few years ago, I was a member of a church that uh, was in downtown San Francisco, and the pastor, rightly so, uh, proposed to the church a major remodel of the facility. Now, this was uh, an essential aspect of the church's long-term commitment to remaining uh, a downtown inner-city church in San Francisco. And I, as a follower, was uh, completely uh, uh, understanding of the need, of the need and of the vision and of the direction that the pastor was trying to give. But my first response when I heard him announce that we were going to go into this major fundraising campaign to raise large amounts of money to refurbish the facility was, there goes my vacation. That was my first response. There goes my vacation. You see, Like most followers, I don't have large amounts of discretionary income or large amounts of discretionary savings just sitting around waiting for some pastor to ask for it. I have a commitment to give to support the ministries where I'm participating, including my church. 
But in order to do that, I have to be very disciplined about my giving. I have to be disciplined to give a weekly or monthly and to be very careful about the rest of my expenditures. And if I'm going to plan for something like a vacation or a new car or some kind of uh, special uh, you know, in, uh, thing at my house like new furniture or something like that, well, I have to save up for it. And so when a pastor gets up and says, uh, we need to give vast amounts of money for a church building project, uh, frankly, my first response was, well, that's going to cost me something. And in this case, it's going to cost me my vacation money because I really do want to be a part of what my church is doing and I really want to sacrifice to help it achieve its mission. But in order to do that, it's going to take something from me. So when I talk about putting yourself in your followers' shoes, uh, I, I want you to learn as a leader to think like a follower and to understand how they're perceiving or even experiencing what you're saying to them about the leadership challenge that you're putting before them. If you're asking them to give up large amounts of time or large amounts of money, if you're asking them to learn new skills or to develop new ministry practices, whatever you're asking them to do to accomplish your vision or to produce a major change or to take your organization or your church forward, whatever you're asking them to do, put yourself in their shoes and ask, how will my followers perceive this or experience this? And understand the cost that they're going to have to pay in time and energy and money to fulfill the vision that you're laying out for them. It's easy for leaders to be out of touch with their followers and to forget the impact that leadership decisions have on them and forget the cost or the sacrifice that's involved in implementing those decisions. You know, as leaders, we get so caught up in the vision, so caught up in the dream that it's hard for us to remember uh, how these things are perceived or experienced by others. So uh, leadership requires followers, and the importance of followers cannot be underestimated, and helping you to understand their position or their place uh, can result if you'll just put yourself in their shoes and think about any major change or any major, le major leadership initiative from their perspective. Now, during a uh, time of change or challenge, what is it that followers crave in order for them to be able to accomplish the, this vision or this change that you've put before them? Well, let me break it down into three categories, and then within one of those categories, let me spend some extra time talking about three components. So what do followers need to be able to accomplish major change or to be able to fulfill ministry vision? Well, first, they need clear, consistent communication. Now, major ministry change or significant ministry vision can produce fear, anxiety, or at least uncertainty in the minds of followers. And so how do you counteract that? Well, you counteract it with clear, consistent communication. Uh, and really clear, consistent communication about two things or in two broad categories. First of all, about biblical truth that relates to the situation at hand. Uh, if you're asking for significant financial gifts, teaching about what God says about economy and money would be a part of this. If you're asking people to uh, take bold steps in evangelism or missions, uh, teaching people the biblical truth about the Holy Spirit's empowerment for those tasks uh, would be essential. So clear, consistent communication, first of all, about biblical truth, but then secondly, about the situation or the challenge or the change that you're trying to implement or to see come about. This means that you talk openly and honestly about what it is you're asking the followers to do and how you anticipate leading them to accomplish it. 
Now, when you're communicating, whether you're communicating biblical truth or whether you're communicating reality about your situation, uh, whether you're uh, doing either one of these, you have to understand that you have to communicate, communicate, over-communicate, and then over-communicate some more to get your message across. Leaders make the mistake of thinking that their followers are spending as much time as they are thinking, praying, planning, and strategizing about this particular change. Let me give you a newsflash. They're not. Your followers are thinking about their job. They're thinking about their schoolwork. They're thinking about their family challenges. They're thinking about their yard that needs to be mowed, the oil that needs to be changed, the clothes that need to be washed. Your followers are thinking about their lives, not about your vision or your mission or the change you're trying to get them to make. Your followers are thinking about themselves. Now, you may say, well, they shouldn't be. Well, why not? Followers have lives just like you do, and they have personal concerns that are overwhelming sometimes, but certainly always ever-present in their lives, even when manageable. And so your followers are thinking about the issues of life that are constantly pressing on them. Now, does that mean they, they can't think about the grander vision of your ministry or your organization or the major change you're trying to get them to implement or to rise up and accomplish the challenge that you're putting before them? Well, of course they can but you have to understand when you're communicating to them that you have to communicate, communicate, and over-communicate so that they understand thoroughly what it is you're trying to get them to do, and they have the resources at hand to understand thoroughly the decisions that are being made and to be a part of it in a good and healthy way. So the first step is clear, consistent communication. That's what followers crave in their leadership relationship with you. The second thing followers need is resources to accomplish the change. And I want to break these resources down into three categories and talk about each, each one of them independently. First of all, uh, followers crave time, or followers need time uh, to accomplish the change or to fulfill the vision that you're putting before them. Now, this means you have to set realistic timelines for accomplishment of whatever it is you're asking the followers to do. First of all, you have to give followers adequate time to process the information and to decide about how they're going to engage. And then you have to also give followers adequate time to implement the change. Now, the question I'm always asked in, in leadership class or in leadership conferences is this. Well, how long does it take? <laughs> how much time should you allow? Well, the, I'll give two general answers to that. First, uh, you'll have to allow the appropriate time based on the depth or the significance or the breadth or the, or the size of the vision or the change that you're trying to implement. So the bigger the project, the more time it's going to take to communicate it well, the more time it's going to take for people to assimilate it, and the more time it's going to take for people to accomplish it. So the first answer to how long does it take is how big is the project. The second answer is this, how long does it take? Longer than you ever imagined. I have consistently throughout my life um, underestimated how long things would take. Uh, I, even as I've gotten to be a better leader, I still find myself surprised that it takes as long to accomplish something organizationally as it really does. And I've stopped thinking in terms of weeks and months. I now think in terms of uh, years of accomplishing major projects or major change. And don't be discouraged by this. Uh, just simply come to reality that leadership change, major projects, enlarged vision, these kinds of things simply take time. So give followers adequate time to process and then adequate time to implement. Now, 
When you provide adequate time for a project to be accomplished, it does several positive things in the lives of your followers. Here's some of examples. First, uh, providing adequate time relieves undue pressure. Now, for example, when a church is going through a building project, there's the pressure to get it finished. Um, after a while, it just becomes so burdensome, so wearisome, everybody just wants to get it done. And so if you, from the beginning, lay out that this is going to be a multi-month or even a multi-year project, it relieves some of that undue pressure. Now, it won't relieve all the pressure because, frankly, there's always pressure to get things done, but it relieves some of the undue pressure of trying to get things done in an unrealistic way and feeling like a failure if you don't. A second thing that providing adequate time does is it assures followers that their needs are being considered. When you say, uh, this project's going to take three months or six months or two years, and your followers hear that, and they think, that's a realistic timeline. Uh, this is a big project or a big challenge or a big vision. It'll take a while to get that done. And they hear the leader saying, and I understand that, and it's going to take us this length of time. The followers have greater confidence both in their leaders, in the fact that their needs are being considered, and in the fact that they can actually do this thing which is being proposed. Providing adequate time also creates a good sense of pace. With most major projects, there's this huge energy surge at the beginning, followed by what I call the energy swoon, which happens next, and then you rally back to try to finish the project. Now, providing adequate time or having a sense of the real amount of time that something's going to take creates a sense of pace from the very beginning. And while it does not eliminate the energy swoon, I'm not sure anything can eliminate that, it does minimize it. Because rather than starting with this crescendoed high, you start with a more reasonable surge of energy that when it dissipates doesn't leave you crashing down into too deep of a swoon that you can't recover. So if you can imagine it like a, uh, like a, a wave, you, you want to ride a slow, gentle wave that has a gentle trough after. You don't want to ride a crescendoing 45-foot wave that has a crashing that comes at the conclusion of it. And so having a good sense of timing of how long something's going to take and laying that out from the very beginning will minimize the, the, the uh, energy swoon or the energy loss that comes and help people have a more even approach to accomplishing the project. And then finally, an adequate timeline for a project or a vision or a change, an adequate timeline recognizes that life happens, especially to followers, and that not everything can be anticipated along the way. And you have to simply anticipate, though, that some things are going to happen and allow time for those things, whatever they may be, and absorb them into your timetable without being put off of your timing. Let me give you an example or two of what I mean. When we were moving the seminary, uh, in the middle of that process, my mom passed away. Now, that uh, set me back a bit. And it diverted my attention from the seminary for a while. But because we had built in enough time for the project to be done realistically, acknowledging that that timeline when we constructed it had to be built around the idea that some unexpected things would happen which would delay us through the process, we were able to absorb, even me personally, able to absorb my mom's passing away and all that went along with that and stay on track with the seminary's processes. Listen, when you announce a major change or you tell your organization that you're going to lead it into a, a new initiative or a new vision and you lay out an adequate timeline, be sure that you lay out a timeline that allows for life to happen 
to your followers. Uh, followers are going to lose jobs. They're going to have relational upheaval. They're going to have deaths in their family. Uh, they're going to have financial setbacks caused not by anything they could have controlled. These things are going to happen in the lives of your followers, and your timeline has to account for that from the beginning. So when you build your timeline, build it realistically, and then say, now, if something unexpected happens, which we know will happen, so it's really an expected unexpected, but when the expected unexpected happens, how much will that delay our project? And then add that time into the timeline of what you think it will take you to accomplish the project. So the first resource that followers need is time. The second one are what I call tracks. Now, I want to borrow the analogy from the railroad industry of the 1800s to help you understand what I mean by tracks. Tracks mean that you create a reasonable path forward that your followers can see and that they know that if they move down that track with you, they will implement the change or accomplish the vision or the project that you've laid before them. This means that you lay out workable steps to accomplish the change. Now, in the 1800s, when the railroad industry was expanding so rapidly and really changing the, uh, you know, the, the North American continent, uh, every day uh, they laid out a little track and they, and they put that track together and that track made it possible for the locomotive to move forward just a little bit. And when it moved forward just a little bit, it brought with it the people and the resources necessary to do what? build the next section of track. And so when the people that were laying out the railroad system uh, started building it, they may have had a grand vision, but every day they laid out a little bit of track. And everyone knew if we just keep following this path, keep building this track, the locomotive can keep coming along with us, and that locomotive can keep pulling along with it the resources we need, people and material, to keep extending the track a little bit further down the, down, down the path. And so that's what you're doing as a leader. You're creating a reasonable path for successful implementation. Uh, you may see the grand vision, and people will share that with you and be excited about it. But what they want to know is, how do we implement this, and what do we do first? And how does what we do first get us to what we do second? And how does what we do second get us to what we do third? And a good leader uh, doesn't just create grand vision or grand plan, but also lays out some tracks that if the people will go down those tracks together, they'll they'll not only accomplish what you've asked them to do, but they'll actually be, in the, even in the accomplishment, bringing along the resources necessary to keep getting the job done. Well, uh, the third T in this section is tools. They need the resources followers need to accomplish a big vision or a major change or a new initiative is our time, tracks, and tools. Now, the right tools, the right tools make any job easier. I've been wearing glasses since I was uh, 12 years old. I got them in kind of a funny way. Uh, my brother was actually struggling a little bit in school, and so uh, the teacher thought it was because he couldn't see the board. So my mom took him in for an eye exam. Turned out my brother had 20-20 vision. But my mom turned to me and said, hey, while we're here, get up in this chair and let the lady test you. And so I said, fine. So I got up in the chair and took the test, and the lady said, how can you even see the blackboard? And I said, I have bad eyes. And that was the day I learned that trees actually had leaves on them. Uh, <laughs> so I walked out of there with glasses, and my brother walked out with his good 20-20 vision. But I've been wearing glasses a long time. And I've had, ever since I was a young guy, I've had a little tiny screwdriver. And that little tiny screwdriver is designed to tighten up little tiny screws that hold uh, glasses together. 
And that little special tool makes it possible to keep glasses maintained and keep them fitting well. The right tool makes any job easier. Now, what does it mean to provide tools to your followers to enable them to stay on track and accomplish a project on time? Well, here's some examples. Providing tools means providing training. Uh, for example, at the Northwest Baptist Convention, I led the church to I led the convention to move from a uh, f- from a staff directed strategy to a field based strategy, and that was more than just a play on words or, or a change of perspective. It was an actual change of how the convention did its work. And when we worked through the process and agreed to make this significant change, the staff was very supportive, but they were also very concerned because they said. We know what this means, and we want to be effective in accomplishing it, but we don't know how. And so we had to bring in some people to do training to teach the staff what it meant to move from a staff-directed strategy to a field-generated or a field-based strategy. And the training that was involved in accomplishing this helped them to retool themselves professionally and refocus their energies in better ways and learn how to do this new uh, vision that we had laid out, how to actually accomplish it. So one of the tools you provide your followers is training. Another tool that you can provide your followers, which is sort of connected to training, but a little broader, is that you can connect them with experts. Connect your followers with experts. In other words, bring people in to help them learn to do or to help them manage the situation they're facing by the change or the initiative or the vision that you've put before them. For example, when we relocated the seminary, it was um, the 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 the, the uh, employees knew how to be a seminary, and even in our new iteration as Gateway and in our new locations, they still had a sense of what that was going to be like, and and they knew basically how to continue to do their jobs. They needed help on other aspects of the change. So, for example, uh, we brought in real estate experts. We brought in people to talk to families about relocation and how to do that. Uh, we brought people to uh, people in to talk about a real estate purchase and how to do that. Uh, we we had uh, open meetings and employees flocked to those meetings and the seminary paid for them for the people to come in and teach people about how to pack and how to relocate and uh, and and how to buy a house and how to do, r- arrange for the finance or how to look for a house and how to arrange for the financing and all of those kinds of things. Uh, another thing we did was uh, we brought in some HR uh, consultants. We actually brought in two of them. We brought in a person who could help us look at all of our job descriptions and redesign our organizational chart for the seminary we were becoming. And then we brought in another person to help us design a compensation structure that would be adequate and uh, that would be realistic in the to the context where we were relocating the seminaries. Bringing in those people helped our employees particularly uh, have greater confidence that they actually could make this change that we were asking them to make because we brought in some outside experts to coach them and guide them and help them with the personal side of the transition that we were going through. So providing tools includes providing training and connecting followers with experts to help them navigate what you're asking them to do. But it even gets more practical uh, than that in that providing tools means giving people the materials they need to do the job. 
Now, this materials they need might be uh, something as simple as curriculum provided for them, or it might be something as simple as providing them a room to meet in, or the or, or the uh, the the uh, technology that's needed. Uh, whatever the tools are, uh, you pro you provide uh, you provide those, or whatever the materials are, you provide those specifically to get the job done. And in the case of the seminary, uh, I mean, it was very specific in providing the materials. Early on in the process, we created something called a packing center. Uh, we set aside a room on the campus and we filled it with multiple sizes of cardboard boxes and tape and other packing materials with the labels that we wanted used and everything that was going to be shipped and all the stuff that would be required uh, to box up and move the seminary. And also, beyond that, for individuals who were being relocated by the seminary to box up and move everything at their house. Now you may say, well, boy, that was generous. Not really. We, we were going to be paying for the move anyway, so it didn't matter if we provided the packing materials through our packing center on the campus or by some other means, and it was actually cheaper for the seminary to simply provide it through the packing center that we created. But we said to employees this, we're asking you to move both the seminary and yourselves, and we want to provide the materials to make that happen. So here's all the boxes, all the tape, all the labels, all the packing materials. Here's everything that you could need, and we're storing it here and making it available to you. And you don't have to buy it from us. You don't have to sign out for it. Uh, we trust you to use these materials wisely. Uh, just go to the uh, packing center and get what you need. And we kept replenishing that for about an 18-month period, uh, replenishing it on a regular basis as people consistently worked on the process of moving the seminary uh, to its new locations. And beyond that, moving themselves uh, in support of the seminary's relocation. So when I say that followers need resources, I mean three things. They need time, they need tracks, and they need tools. So they first of all need good communication, and second of all, they need these resources. But finally, followers also crave and need recognition for the sacrifices they're making to accomplish the mission or the vision or the change or the project that you've laid before them. Now there's several ways to give recognition to followers. First, of course, is to honor them with either written or verbal praise. To say in their presence and in the presence of others, good job, I appreciate you. I really admire what you've accomplished. Thank you for being a part of this team. Thank you for your sacrifice. Those things, those words, either written or verbally communicated, coming from a leader, really make a difference. This was illustrated to me very profoundly recently in a leadership relationship I have with a particular follower. Um, he did an outstanding job on a specialized project, so much so that I felt he deserved uh, some uh, small uh, cash bonus or some small cash award for what he had done here as an employee. And so we put that together, and it wasn't a large amount of money, but we put it together, and I wrote a note. A handwritten note thanking him for what he had accomplished and for the contribution he had made to the seminary and includes the note with a small gift and sent it on. Well, a few days later, he, he, he came to my office and, and uh, said, I, I, can't, I can't accept this. And I said, oh, sure, you can. I mean, you worked hard for it. You went way beyond the call of duty. It's not that much money, and I hope you'll enjoy it. And he said, no, I, I really can't. I, I just so much enjoyed what I did, and it meant so much to me to be a part I don't, I don't need this. I'm going to give it back to the seminary. I said, well, that, that's your business, but I want you to know we do appreciate you. And then he said this. He held up the note I'd written, and he said, but I'm keeping this. Thank you so much for, uh, thank, thank you so much for writing this note to me and, and for what you had to say about my contribution to the seminary. That means a lot to me. 
And I learned that day that while do people, of course, appreciate a monetary gift or a monetary recognition, they also appreciate verbal or written praise that says, you did a good job, I'm proud of you, and it means a lot to me. Thank you for what you've done. A second way you can recognize your followers is through what I call meaningful gifts. Now, these are not monetary gifts. These are things that are more token-type gifts. Uh, and again, uh, here at the seminary, a good example is a, a little silly sticker we invented or a little silly sign we invented when we were moving the seminary. When we were getting ready to close up in Mill Valley, we created an 8.5 by 11 little uh, piece of paper made on a copy machine that was called a boom sticker. And it said, uh, boom, and it had like an exploding thing, you know, like a graphic, and it said, boom, uh, uh, this room uh, th- this room is finished. And uh, uh, and I printed those up, and I had a meeting with everybody we were training in the last days, you know, getting ready to relocate, and I said, now look, when you think your, your office is closed and you're ready to move and you've got it all out of there, call me, and I'll come by and inspect it, and if you are, I'll put this sign on your door, boom, this office is finished or this room is finished. Well, those became called, they came to be called boom stickers, and people really wanted those things. And only the president could give them out. And so, as people were finishing up packing over that week that we were finalizing the whole project, you know, they're coming up to me and saying, Hey, can you come and look at my room? Can you come and look at my room? And it was my opportunity to go and not only look at their room, but thank them for what they had done, give them a pat on the back, and put that boom sticker on their door and say, You got it. Boom, you're done. And then when we moved down to Southern California, we created another one called Ready to Roll. It was, again, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper made on a copy machine with a kind of a little graphic that said, ready to roll. And, uh, uh, and I said, now, when your office is completely set up and you've got everything unpacked and there's not a box in sight and there's no trash in sight, there's no packing materials in sight, and you've even vacuumed the floor to make sure all the carpet lint's been picked up from, uh, from unloading all the stuff. When you think your office is ready, you call me, I'll come by, I'll give you the all clear, and I'll put this ready to roll sign on your door. Well, those things became just as popular as people were trying to compete almost to get their offices set up. We had said that it would take uh, the seminary, we had set aside uh, um, four weeks to set up and be ready to go, and we did it in two and a half. It was amazing how fast everyone got the work done. And then when it was all over, one person came to me and said, hey, I got my ready to roll sign here. I said, okay, great. He goes, would you sign it for me? I said, sure. So, So I signed, hey, thanks for your hard work, you know, Jeff Orge, and and he said, I really appreciate that. You don't have any idea how much it means to me to be a part of the history of moving this seminary. Thank you so much. And I went by his office a few days later. He had gone out and bought a picture frame and framed that 8.5 by 11 and hung it up by his desk. And he's still got it hanging there today. And it's a reminder to him that he, he was recognized and honored and appreciated in just a simple way for the sacrifice he made in getting the seminary up and going so quickly. Well, I'm just saying that people do need recognition and followers need it. And you say, well, they're serving the Lord, they're serving the church, they're serving the ministry. They should do it for him. They shouldn't need all this recognition and all this honor and all this praise. Hey, listen, get over that. There's not anything wrong, and there's nothing in the Bible that prohibits you learning to say thank you to people, to express gratitude and honor and appreciation for the sacrifices they're making to make a common ministry dream come true. So, followers... They are important. In fact, without followers, it's questionable whether you're really a leader. But if you have followers, they will actually get the work done that you call them to do to accomplish the vision, to fulfill the project, or to accomplish a major change that God has put before you. Followers need some things from you as their leader. They need clear, consistent communication. They need resources like 
time and tracks and tools to get the job done. And then they need recognition. Honest thanks for what they've done and the sacrifice they've made. You do these things, your followers will appreciate you, and you'll be able to lead on.